0: Before we dive into the next section, uh, one last thing uh, about the remonstrance that I forgot to mention last time. And that is uh, that one of the benefits of knowing about the remonstrance is to recognize it when you see it again. One of the good things about knowing about the remonstrance is that you can recognize it when you see it again. And it's come back in a place uh, that isn't labeled, people who hold to remonstrant views don't always label themselves as remonstrants. Uh, sometimes they call themselves Reformed. And remember, the the, reform, the Remonstrants called themselves Reformed, and uh, James Arminius was a minister in the Reformed Church in good standing. He was never actually disciplined for his views. Uh, we could say he was disciplined uh, after the fact, right, posthumously at the Senate of Dort, but while he was alive, he was never actually disciplined. There, were, there was controversy, but never any actual sentence of discipline. Um, and, and the remonstrants were also, uh, before the Synod of Dort, member ministers in good standing. Well, there are so-called Reformed ministers. There, I don't think they really are Reformed, and I don't think the Reformed churches uh, think that they are Reformed. But they describe themselves as such, and they've had an influence on the Reformed world. There's a movement called the Federal Vision Movement it's um, uh, this is a movement that's grounded in the teaching of a of a um, theologian who taught in, on the East Coast for several years and there was a big controversy uh, on the, in the East Coast seminary from nineteen seventy four to nineteen eighty one and among uh, the things that he taught was that we' are justified through faith and works that's a quote that's not my summary but that is the language that he used. later he used the, the word uh, the language of faithfulness. Well, again, this is not the gospel, and it's not what we confess. It's certainly not what Heidelberg 21, Heidelberg 60, or, or 56, or, or uh, Westminster Confession Chapter 11, or Westminster Larger Catechism 70 through 74. It's n- none of those places teach anything like that. Uh, but this, this was a, a heated controversy, and finally he was dismissed in 1981 for teaching, among other things, justification through faithfulness. Well, then he... He also was teaching at the same time uh, that in baptism, everyone who is everyone who's baptized is united to Christ. And uh, you, are, you are in by baptism, and you stay in, he was teaching, this is my summary, but I think it's an accurate summary, through faith and works, right? And so you're justified through faith and works. You, you, you keep what you were given in your baptism uh, by being faithful, uh, that is, uh, not, that, that's not exactly what the Remonstrants uh, taught, but it's very similar. And uh, he set up a parallel system and so that he would say, on the one hand, there's the traditional doctrine of election. And he said, I believe that. But then he said, when we talk about covenant, then there's a covenantal election and a covenantal, uh, conditional union with Christ and a, and a covenantal adoption the covenantal justification, and so forth. And that's all conditional. So that uh, uh, some of us have called this view covenantal Arminianism. So one of the reasons why it's good to know what the remonstrants were saying is so that when you see people teaching effectively the same doctrine, but calling it covenantal, right? In our circles, if somebody says, well, I'm covenantal, we just assume they must mean what we mean. Right? We assume, well, we're Reformed, we're covenantal, they're covenantal, they must uh, agree with us, they must mean the same thing. Well, it's not true. Under the rubric or the heading of covenant, they redefined Reformed theology quite radically through this doctrine of baptismal union with Christ or the baptismal benefits of Christ. That's not what we teach. Um, it's not what we confess. But one of the places where you can see where they ended up like the remonstrance is in their... So, so out of Shepherd came this movement that came to be known in 2002 or 2004 as the Federal Vision theology. That was the name they gave themselves, uh, the Federal Vision. And so, Federal Visionists and the RCUS is one of the denominations that stood up publicly in 2007, about there, and uh, did had study committees and at Synod uh, took a stand and and critiqued and rejected this doctrine, this Federal vision, doctrine of salvation is contrary to the Word of God. So I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters. My uh, federation of churches, the United Reformed Churches, rejected it uh, repeatedly uh, in uh, two or three different synodical meetings, the nine points of of pastoral advice against the federal vision, and then we adopted or received, I guess, a report that critiques the federal vision and rejected it uh, there, too. The Federal Visionists, in 2007, published a statement a little bit like the Remonstrance of 1610, and on this business of perseverance and apostasy, this is what they said. We affirm that apostasy is a terrifying reality for many baptized Christians. Remember, in their view, every baptized person is united to Christ by virtue of their baptism. Right, So when you're baptized, you are, by virtue of that act, united to Christ. Now you have to hang on to it. Okay, That's the whole point of their system, really, is to get you to be good by putting your salvation uh, in your hands to some degree. Right? All who are baptized into the triune name are united with Christ. That's a quote. All who are baptized into the triune name are united with Christ. This is not our confession. This is the... Federal Vision Joint Federal Vision Statement from 2007. In his covenantal life, so that those who fall from that position of grace, watch this, are indeed falling from grace. In the Federal Vision, grace is resistible. Well, where else is grace resistible? It's also resistible in, in the Remonstrant theology, in Arminian theology. The branches that are cut away from Christ are genuinely cut away from someone cut out of a living covenant body. The connection that an apostate had to Christ was not merely external. And there they go to war with a fundamental conviction of Reformed theology. That is this, that there are two ways of being in the one uh, body of Christ or or the covenant community. There are two so, in shorthand, we always, we've always said there are two ways of being in the covenant of grace. Everyone who is baptized has an external relationship to the covenant of grace. Uh, and those who are elect and who come to faith and through faith by the Spirit are united to Christ, they have an internal relationship to the covenant of grace. And this is Paul's teaching in Romans 2 and in Romans 9. In Romans 9, Paul says, a Jew is one who was a Jew inwardly. and In Romans 2, uh, he Paul distinguishes between uh, those uh, who are sorry. that's Romans two. A Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. By implication, there's an outward relationship, right? This is what he describes earlier in Romans uh, chapter three. What? Um, uh, uh, um, yeah, hang on. I should not try to do this from from uh, memory or extemporaneously. What advantage? Yeah, he says. Uh, has the Jew, uh, much in every way, there, uh, theirs are the covenants, theirs are the promises, theirs are, uh, are the law. Right? That's the external benefit of being in the covenant of grace. You're outwardly uh, entered into the visible covenant community. Right? But a Jew, he says, is one who is a Jew inwardly. That is, by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, where you're granted new life and true faith, and, and through faith united to Christ. And then in Romans 9, he says, not all Israel is Israel. Um, in other words, there's an outward Israel and an inward Israel. Well, the federal visionists reject that distinction. Well, this is an argument that Reformed people have both with the federal visionists and with our Baptist brothers and sisters. Right? We appreciate them, uh, but they don't agree with us about this inward, uh, uh, internal, external, or, or inward, outward distinction. But that if you don't have that distinction, you really have a great difficulty understanding uh, the whole sweep of redemptive history. Was Esau in the covenant? Well, yes, outwardly, but not inwardly. Right? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Right? There are always two ways of being in the visible covenant community. And you only receive the benefits of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, and, and having an inward relationship. Well, the federal vision denies that and says, uh, and so this is really the core of the federal vision uh, error that baptism creates this union with Christ and grants all these benefits, and you didn't have a merely external relationship, but you had an actual internal relationship. And then you can fall away. And then they go on to say, we deny that any person who is chosen by God for final salvation before the foundation of the world can fall away and be finally lost. The decretally elect cannot apostatize. But who are the decretally elect? They are those who cooperated sufficiently with grace unto final salvation, so uh, it, uh, the language uh, and there's other language in this document that sounds very much like the language of article five of the, of the remonstrance so one of my my pastor, Chris Gordon, calls uh, this view uh, the federal vision view covenantal arminianism so it's uh, so it 's when we study this stuff, we're not just studying history, as valuable as that is. I mean, Far be it from me <laughs> to, to denigrate the, the use and study of history. Uh, but it has, really, it has real practical benefits for understanding what's going on around us uh, in the churches. And let me just, I won't be too pointed, but the Federal Vision didn't die and go away in 2007 or in 2010. It's still around. It's in Nebraska and it's in Lincoln. So you need, it's not here, right? Blessedly at St. John's RCUS. It's not an Omaha Reformed Church, but it is in Lincoln. And so you need to pay attention a little bit. You need to know what this is, um, and, and you need to understand what, what the effect of this is. There are people who, who will say and who will tell you because um, I've had discussions with some of them. Oh, who knows what the Federal Vision is? Well, we do. (laughs) I do. (laughs) I know what it is. I can tell you. And they can tell you they wrote a document in 2007. All you have to do is read the document. It's called the Joint Federal Vision Statement. And I've read their books, and I've interacted with them. I've written books and articles against them. And the the churches have spoken. Read the RCUS report. Read the URC report. Go to the Heidel blog, heidelblog.net. Just search for Federal Vision. There's a resource page on the Federal Vision with more than you'd ever want to know about the Federal Vision. There's articles, lectures, all, kind of, all kinds of things. So it's, we certainly know what it is, and we certainly know what they said, and we know why it's wrong, and we know why it's dangerous. So uh, it's, worth, it's worth knowing. So there's a point of contact between what we've been saying and what's actually going on uh, in Reformed churches. The reason the Federal Vision's an issue is because it existed... Um, it exists in Reformed churches. There are people in the PCA and other groups. Uh, we, we've had ministers, uh, in, or at least people connected to my uh, federation um, who were saying things like this, who had to be disciplined and corrected. Um, and that's why we had to address this. And by the way, you, just in case you think to yourself, well, I'm just a lay person, I, what do I know? It, and I'll, I'll move on here in a second. But... It was two lay people in my federation. It wasn't ministers. It wasn't elders. It wasn't even seminary students who actually finally forced us to deal with this or who got us to start dealing with this. It was a a, a farmer, Hank Navis, H-E-N-K, Hank Navis, and Elsie, his wife. They spoke up because they heard their minister preach a sermon, the title of which was The Lion Won't Bite the Innocent. And in that sermon, he said, there's two stages of justification. You have an initial justification by grace alone through faith alone, but you have a final justification that's partly through your sanctification and your good works, and it's partly on the basis of what Christ did. And and Hank and Elsie Navis, who never went to seminary, might not even have gone to university. They said, you know what? I don't think that's right. Because that's not what we know from the Word of God as confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgian Confession. Because they knew Article 22, they knew Article 23 and Article 24, and they knew Heidelberg 1, 21, you know, 56, and 60. And they said, that's not right. And they wrote me a letter and they say, Pastor Clark, this is what our Domine says. Is that right? We don't think that's right. And we think that's contradictory. And I, I wrote back to them and said, you are absolutely correct. And they complained to their consistory, their elders. In the Dutch system, the elders and the ministers are the consistory. And they, they complained to the consistory, and they said, we don't think this is right. And the consistory says, ach, what do you know? Go away. It's a true story. Then they, complained to the cl- they appealed to the classes, and they said, you know, classes, we don't think this is right. We, we, we want you to, to investigate this. And classes said, ach, what do you know? Go away. It's a true story. And they, then they appealed to synod. And they said, look, we think classes and consistory are wrong. And the synod rose up and said, you're exactly right, Hank and Elsie. And you classes, shame on you for not, for not defending the sheep. And you consistory, stop doing that and tell your minister to quit saying stupid things like that, false things, and knock it off. And the minister left, and he went to the communion of Reformed Evangelical churches, which is a sect. right? organized in in, certain, in a large degree around a single personality in Idaho, and that teaches the, uh, this Federal Vision doctrine. So don't ever tell yourself, oh, I haven't been to seminary. I don't know. You think of Hank and Elsie Navis, who stood up for the truth. And because they stood up for the truth, my federation is orthodox on the doctrine of justification. Wasn't a minister. Wasn't an elder, and an, and, and an entire classis was wrong, an entire classis and their consistory, pardon. So, yeah. So there you go. Anyway, so that, so the stuff we're talking about this is real life, right? We need to know this now for our churches. That's why if if it wasn't, if it was a purely historical interest, I wouldn't be going around talking about the Canons of Dort, the way I am. It's you need to know the Canons of Dort because it it still is preserving the Gospel, even today. If if, if we really paid attention to the Canons of Dort, we would have responded to the Federal Vision controversy with a lot more certainty. Because if you read the, there's another section to the Canons of Dort that doesn't get a lot of attention. That's the rejection of errors. And in the rejection of errors, if you substitute Federal Vision for remonstrance, it's extraordinary. How often the rejection of errors speaks to the federal vision. Uh, my, again, my pastor, Chris Gordon, pointed this out probably 10 years ago. And, he's, and when I saw that, he said, you know, What do you think of that? You think that's true? And I looked at that and I thought, ah, You know, you were absolutely right. So, anyway, so I, I did not think of that. That was Chris, Chris Gordon who, uh, who gets credit for that. All right, so, so we looked at the remonstrance from 1610 at their five points. And we responded with initially with seven points. And so in this session, that's what I want to do, is go through with you uh, the, the seven points of the contra remonstrance. So you remember the, in the 1980s uh, in, El, in uh, Nicaragua, Nicaragua, or as they used to say on uh, uh, National, public radio, National Public Radio, Nicaragua, a friend of mine used to call um, NPR Nicaraguan public radio, because they were the only ones that ever Said Nicaragua, um, and uh, we had an, uh, the the communists were trying to had taken over Nicaragua, and President uh, Reagan wanted to fund the Contras, and the some of the Congress didn't want to fund the. Well, the the original Contras were the reformed ministers, who wrote the Contra Remonstrance in 1611. They were the original Contras uh, before the Contras. And they did so, as I say, in, in seven points. And the first article of the Contra Remonstrance in 1611 says this. And by the way, the, you remember the uh, the two fellows that I mentioned who first complained about Arminius? Anybody remember the first one who complained? Close. Who said that? Raise your hand. Oh, pastor got it. Very good. Petrus Plancius. Petrus Plancius was a... Lowly Reformed minister, actually, he was quite the, the scholar, really. Uh, he was a scholar of geography, and he's considered the father of Dutch reform missions, which is another point. One of the reasons why we stood up against the remonstrance is we wanted to reach the lost with the gospel, but we did not want to reach the lost with a gospel that says you're saved by, quote-unquote, grace and cooperation with grace. That was not good news. So Petrus Plancius and others gathered together in May of 1611, in fact, we actually allowed Arminian ministers to attend this meeting. And, and this is what we, what we said. And this is basically what would become a part of the canons of Dort. In Article 1, we said, As in Adam, the whole human race, created in the image of God, has with Adam fallen into sin and thus become so corrupt that all men are conceived and born in sin, and thus uh, are by nature children of wrath, lying dead in their trespasses, so that there is within them no more power to convert themselves truly unto God and to believe in Christ than a corpse has power to raise itself from the dead. Why did they say that? Because the remonstrance implied, suggested, and we're teaching that, of course, grace is available to those who do their part. And we wanted to say immediately, you have no part to do. You can't do, quote-unquote, your part. And by the way, the Federal Visionists say the same thing. You've been united to Christ in baptism, but the, the next thing out of their mouth is always there are two parts to the covenant. God has done your part, you need to do your part. God has done his part. You need to do your part. Um, so, it's, again, when we're battling the remonstrance here in history, we're also preparing to battle the federal visionists today. So we say, no, you're dead in sins and trespasses. Right? And you can't, you're, you can't cooperate with grace or convert yourself or believe any more than you can raise yourself from the dead. So, we say, God draws uh, out of this condemnation and delivers a certain number of men, human beings, right? A certain number, not an uncertain number. In Arminianism, according to the Remonstrance, God elects a class of people, right? Not a, a certain number of people, but a class of all whoever, He makes it available, whoever will do their part and cooperate with grace. No, we say God has elected those whom he's known and loved in Christ unconditionally from all eternity. This means tonight when you go to bed uh, and you go to bed believing, it's because God loved you and knew you and chose you from all eternity. And you can sleep soundly tonight uh, in the knowledge that you belong to. Christ and Christ belongs to you, not because you're good, not because you're clever, not because you're cooperating, but because God loved you from all eternity unconditionally, in Christ, who in His eternal and immutable counsel has chosen out of, uh, right, uh, out of mere grace, right, not conditional grace, but or uh, unconditional grace, mere grace, according to the good pleasure of His will, unto salvation in Christ passing by the others. Well, that's classic uh, infralapsarian language. Remember I last time, in the last session, I put up on the, the board the superposition, God created. right? There's creatables, and out of the creatables, some are elect, some are reprobate. And then the infralapsarian view, God is said to have created. Then there's the fall, permitted the fall. Out of the fallen, elected some and, and left the others. Well, this is the infralapsarian language. He's out of the mass of, of uh, condemnable humans, God is elected certain and passed by the others in his just judgment, leaving them in their sins. This is, by the way, uh, our initial response to the problem of evil. Right? Uh, this, is our, this is our initial response to the problem of evil. Right? We don't we can't explain the mystery. We just can't. There is no explaining the mystery of evil, but but there are true things that we can say about it. Adam freely chose. Now, did he choose apart from the decree of God? No. There's nothing that, that occurs outside of the decree of God. Everything that occurs, occurs within God's sovereign decree. But at the same time, Adam was not bound by sin as we are, right? We're born dead in sins and trespasses, and we choose by nature according to our our nature. And so in that sense, our will is bound. Adam's will was not bound in that way. Adam's will is always subordinate to God's, right? It would be blasphemy to say that God can will something, or Adam can will something that God has not decreed. That that's not possible. We're made from dust. We're made in the image of God, but we are made from dust, and to dust we shall return. Uh, at the same time, Adam was able to freely choose because he was created, what do we say in the in Heidelberg? In, uh, six, in righteousness and true holiness, that we might rightly know God his creator and love him and live with him in eternal blessedness. Had he obeyed, and as uh, we came to say, as Ursinus says, um, uh, the covenant of works, the covenant of law, the covenant of nature, had... Adam obeyed, Luther said this, he would have entered into eternal blessedness, and uh, he chose, he freely chose not to. That's not God's responsibility morally. that's not God's responsibility morally. We still now choose freely. We, so I, I like to distinguish between free will and free choice. We don't have free will, but we do have uh, we do make uncoerced choices. You chose on a rainy, cloudy Saturday morning to get out of bed and to come hear me for reasons that I will never understand. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad you did, and I, I hope it's edifying. But you made a free choice. You could have chosen to do something else, and you didn't. Now, that choice was encompassed within God's decree. He knew from all eternity, and, and it's all part of his providence. But you, in your experience, did actually make a choice. We're morally responsible for that choice. How do those things relate? Well, it's difficult. It's a mystery, isn't it? Uh, it uh, so we don't try to solve the... This is the crazy thing. We get, uh, we Orthodox, Reformed people, you and I, we get uh, accused uh, of being rationalists, of putting the human intellect over the will of God, over the Word of God. Uh, that's not true. It's the remonstrants who put the human intellect over the Word of God. We submit to the Word of God, and when there are mysteries, do you know what we say? It's a mystery. How does, for example, in... in uh, Heidelberg uh, in the 70s, right? Uh, uh, when it talks about the Lord's Supper, how is it that we are fed uh, on the body of Christ? Or as the Belgic says, uh, fed on the proper and natural body and the, and the blood of Christ. How does that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit does it. How does the Holy Spirit do that? We don't know. Ask Calvin, if you read the Institutes, when he writes about the supper, he says, I don't know how this happens. This is just what the word of God says. It's a mystery. We believe we are fed by the body of Christ. Right? He's not in, with, and under, and the the elements don't become the body. Uh, They are the body sacramentally. There's no magic that takes place, but it is a mystery. So the Reformed theology, the the Orthodox Reformed theology, the Heidelberg Reformed theology, the, the Belgic, the canons, right?" That's a a theology that freely recognizes mystery. We're not rationalists. It's the remonstrants who put the human intellect over the Word of God. So I think that's important because you you, you will hear people say the opposite sometimes. But the evidence uh, is against them. All right, second article. Uh, Now, this is kind of interesting, and it's it's sort of unexpected, except if you know what the remonstrants were saying. Uh, Article 2 that not only adults who believe in Christ and accordingly walk worthy of the gospel are to be reckoned as God's elect children, but also the children of the covenant, so long as they do not in their conduct manifest the contrary, and that therefore believing parents when their children die in infancy have no reason to doubt the salvation of these their children. This actually is a... Got picked up. All this got picked up and added or used in the canons of Dort. This becomes canons of Dort one seventeen. That uh, uh, we say uh, that covenant children, right? So uh, covenant uh, parents, believers, and their children are to be reckoned as elect. Those who those who profess faith we regard as elect, unless they show to the contrary that they that they're unbelieving and are placed. Under discipline. What do we say about covenant children of believers, not just professors, but believers, when they die in infancy? We say that they go to be with the Lord. Uh, this is a promise that we give uh, that God's word gives to believers who lose children in infancy. This is a, a great comfort to believers, and the basis of the promise is Genesis 17:7, 7. "I will be a God to you and to your children." David claimed this promise right? when his uh, infant uh, son died. He grieved and he mourned, and he, you know, covered himself uh, in, in dust and ashes. And then, when he was told that his child had died, he got up, he cleaned himself up, and he had something to eat. And he said, uh, "You know, uh, my my child is with the Lord." He had that that covenantal confidence, that that promise. This is because the remonstrants were saying that we were monsters, and and basically sending all of these children who died in infancy to hell. This is one of the accusations they made against us. And we responded by saying, no, we believe in the in the covenant promise of God. I will be a God to you and to your children. And that means that uh, children of believers who die in infancy uh, go to be with the Lord. Um, and again, the Federal Visionists have tried to, to change the terms of this teaching. And they, they've tried to say that what we mean here is that all baptized children go to be with the Lord, and that's not that's not what we say. We say the children of believers. Uh, the canons say pious parents should believe and not doubt. In other words, uh, believing parents. Um, all right, so that's that's Article Two. Uh, the children of believers who die in infancy go to be with the Lord. Uh, that's a pastoral promise that I've made to parents, repeated to parents in uh, who, who are grieving the loss of infant children um, children do- who have been lost before they were born, and so forth. Article 3, um, that, that God in his election, now watch this, has not looked to the faith or conversion of his elect, right, nor to the right use of his gifts as the grounds of election, but that on the contrary he in his eternal and immutable counsel has purposed and decreed to bestow faith and perseverance in godliness and thus to save those whom he, according to his good pleasure, has chosen to salvation. In other words, where the remonstrance said God has uh, decreed to save those whom he foresees who will choose to belong to the class of those who believe and persevere and obey, we say, no, we persevere, we believe, we obey, and we persevere because we're chosen, because we're elect. It's a completely different way of looking at election. Election is not conditioned upon what we do or what God foresees. Election is conditioned upon God's grace, His free favor. Why is this important? Well, it means that just, be, just as God, uh, if you are a believer, just as God elected you and loved you, chose you in Christ from all eternity, uh, without reference to, to anything in you, or done by you or foreseen in you, so also you can't lose what he's given you. It's not conditioned on what you uh, will do, or what you have done. Do you understand that? It's not conditioned by what you will do or what you have done. It's conditioned by His grace, His good pleasure, His choice. That's why it's grace. If it were something in you or done by you, it would no longer be grace. For if it is by works, it is no more by grace. Romans 11.6 this is about the nature of grace. This is about, this is about again, in a, in a very real sense, how you sleep at night. This is against foreseen faith. Article 4. Uh, to this end, he has, first of all, presented and given to them his own... Now what, Did you see that, by the way? Presented and given to whom? To them. Who are them? The elect given to them His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, whom He delivered up to the death of the cross, watch this, in order to save His elect. That's hugely important. In order to save His elect. Not in order to make salvation possible for those who do their part. Jesus accomplished your redemption. John Murray, uh, who taught... Uh, at Westminster Seminary for many, many decades, wrote a, a wonderful book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. That's a great way to talk about what happened. My colleague, Mike Horton, when he was a, some ridiculously young age, wrote a book called Mission Accomplished, I think, or something like that, on on redemption, on, on limited atonement. And, he, and, and both of them make the point that uh, Jesus didn't come to make salvation possible. He came to actually, effectively accomplish your redemption, which is why he said, as I keep reminding everyone, he said on the cross, it is finished. He didn't say, I did my part, now you do yours. This is not like a, a lawn raking exercise where dad maybe goes out and does some and gets you, know, gets you started, then sends the kids out to finish the rest of it. No, he did the whole thing. He did all of it. He accomplished it. And not only did he accomplish it, he sovereignly applied it to us by his Holy Spirit. While we were dead in sins and trespasses, he made us alive by his Holy Spirit, gave us true faith, and through that faith, we are connected by the Spirit to Christ. The whole thing is grace from beginning to end. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, it's from faith and it's to faith. It's grace from beginning to end, is, is, is what he's saying. In order, it says, to, this is Article 4, to save his elect, so that although the suffering of Christ as that of the only begotten and unique Son of God is sufficient unto the atonement of the sins of all men, and nevertheless the same according to the counsel and decree of God has its efficacy Unto reconciliation and forgiveness of sins only in the elect and true believer. the The remonstrants were saying, "You've limited the power of Christ's atoning death." That was their accusation. You've limited the power of the atoning death of Christ by saying that Christ died only for the elect, as if that's all he could do. And and what we responded in the contra remonstrance of sixteen eleven by saying, "No." The power of Christ's death was sufficient for the whole world. The intent, this is the huge point, the intent of the atonement was actually to accomplish the redemption of those whom God has known and loved in Christ, elected unconditionally from all eternity. In other words, Christ actually accomplished your redemption. I did. Uh, I, 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 this is. This really goes back to John 17. This goes back to John 10. He lays down his life for his sheep. He actually accomplished the redemption of uh, of his people. All right. So now we're up to five, and and I don't know if you can see this very clearly, but I try. I put it in red, so maybe you'd still be able to see it. Um, this is an interesting and somewhat surprising. Uh, point but this is a point that needs to be emphasized and, and re-articulated in, in our day uh, right? this is the doctrine of the free or well met offer of Christ one of the things that the remonstrants were alleging against us is we didn't have any concern because we have this doctrine of, of limited atonement that we didn't have any concern for the lost and people still say this about us And there are, and, and to be Frank, there are people in the Reformed world who, who t- don't seem to express always a lot of concern or a proper concern about the, the, the state of the lost. And there is a movement, you know, I really don't think it's a very large movement in the history of Reformed theology, known as hyper-Calvinism, that doesn't have an active sort of vital interest in the, in the salvation of the lost or seems to be somewhat indifferent. Well, this is how we responded at the synod, uh, or the, in the Contra remonstrance. And again, this language gets picked up and used in the canons of Dort. And this is important because there are groups, even you know, uh, within the, there are churches within the Reformed world that actively reject this doctrine of the free offer. And they consider it a mark of Arminianism. Uh, I've been defending the doctrine of the free offer uh, in print and online and and when I have opportunity to speak about it for a long time, and for doing that, <clears throat> I've been accused publicly of being an Arminian. Right? Well, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, I'm no more Arminian than Petrus Plancius, And Petrus Plancius is the first critic of Arminius. He couldn't possibly have been an Arminian. He's the first anti-Arminian. So we, need, we do need to get this right. Article 5, that furthermore, to the same end, God the Lord has his holy gospel preached and and that the Holy Spirit, watch this now, watch this adverb, externally through the preaching of that same gospel and internally, remember that distinction I made in the last session between external and internal? Here it is in Article 5 of the Contra Remonstrance. Externally through the preaching of the Holy Gospel and internally through, the, uh, through a special grace works so powerfully in the hearts of God's elect that He illumines their minds, transforms and renews their wills, removing the heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh in such a manner that by these means They not only receive power to convert themselves and believe, but also actually and willingly do repent and believe. What what is this really saying? Well, uh, uh, you know what this is saying because you know this this doctrine uh, because you know it from Heidelberg 65. You know Heidelberg 65. Since then, we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith alone or faith only. From where does this faith come? Was the Holy Spirit right, works faith in our hearts through the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it through the use of the Holy Sacraments. This is all we were saying. Against the remonstrants who said, you people don't really believe in the, in the offer of Christ. Because what they did is they set it up and they said, Unless you believe in a universal atonement, you're denying the offer of the gospel. And we're saying, no, we believe in an actual gospel and in a free offer of that gospel to all men everywhere. Right? We believe the gospel needs to go to all men and every man. Men meaning humans in 16th, 17th, 17th century terms. Right? So we don't believe in a universal atonement, but we do believe in a universal offer, a free offer, a well-meant offer. And the language that the Synod of Dort used, uh, it it used two adverbs. Uh, I'll change colors here. The two adverbs uh, that we used were seriously and uh, uh, what might in this context seem like a funny word, promiscuously. The offer of the gospel needs to be made seriously and promiscuously. We, this is our language of the free offer that we, we say to all and everyone. And we can say this, and I have said this many times, many places. I preached lots of different places, preached in uh, uh, you know, city missions, city mission in Kansas City. I preached many times to Sleepy. Men who only wanted something, someplace warm to be and something warm to eat. Uh, and I've said, Whosoever will may come. We believe that. Because we believe that whosoever will are made willing by the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by the free offer. We can say, uh, uh, Why will you perish? says the Lord. Why won't you turn? Turn, turn, says the Lord. We can say to people, We can say to the whole world Uh, oh Jerusalem Jerusalem how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks that's our doctrine of the free offer of the God we we want to go and preach Christ freely promiscuously and in a well-meant way to everyone everywhere Uh, what this means is we don't believe that we ever should try to play a, a game show a game that, that uh, too many people have been known to play. And I call that game show Guess the Elect, right? Like Bob Barker. Right? It's time to play Guess the Elect. And, and the game show would be that we get to sit around and guess who is elect and who isn't elect. Like going down to Memorial Stadium and sitting on a, a wall and you know picking people out. Yeah, I don't think so. I think maybe. Right? We don't play that game. We offer Christ to everyone. Uh, so what does this mean? This means that, you, that uh, we ought to be giving witness to our faith, like the man who was born blind. Right? And I, I won't do this long, but, but that chapter, John 9, I think is a great pattern for Christian evangelism. The man who was born blind hadn't any catechism, any instruction, uh, but all he did was tell the truth when he was asked questions. Who did this? Well, Jesus of Nazareth, he, when he when he got his sight back. How did it happen? I don't know. What happened? Well, I was blind. Now I can see. That's what I know. Now, you can do more than that, but you can certainly do that. right? And in fact, if you read that narrative, he actually, at the end, begins challenging the, the, the people who are questioning him, saying, well, you, you seem to be very interested in this. Do you want to become his follower too? And by the end, without any instruction, right? think of all the sermons you've heard, morning sermons, evening sermons, catechism lessons, Bible studies. You have a vastly more, vastly more instruction in the Christian faith than the man who was born blind and he was able to give witness and to invite those with whom he was talking to put their trust in Christ. Right? So we, we we believe in the free offer. We confess the free offer, and it's it's it, the the seed form of it is here in Article Five, in the Contra Remonstrance, uh, that the that the Lord has His holy gospel preached, and that the Holy Spirit externally. Right through the preaching of the gospel, how is it, and I think this is a, I'll make one more point on this, how is it that the Holy Spirit has promised to operate. Well, Romans 10 says that it's through the preaching of the gospel. So when your minister, when people say, well, you Reformed people don't believe in evangelism, um, you have to question the premise. You say, we we certainly do believe in evangelism. My minister preaches the gospel every Sunday. That's evangelism. It's uh, It's not our job to go do the work of the Holy Spirit and manipulate people into becoming Christians. Our job is to announce to people the law, the greatness of their sin and misery, and the gospel, how Christ has died for his people uh, to redeem them. And, to, and we trust and pray that God the Holy Spirit will use that announcement to bring his elect to new life and true faith. Right? Um, all right. So there's, there's the first five. Two more. Number um, six of the seven points, right? Uh, Synod's going to modify this or adapt this and make it part of the of the fi- of the five points. Uh, number six is our doctrine of sanctification. Oops. You remember the. The Remonstrants said, we believe, in effect, that you can achieve what they later came to call entire sanctification. Entire sanctification. We say, in Article 6, that those whom God has decreed to save are not only once so enlightened, regenerated, and renewed in order to believe in Christ and, and convert themselves to God when they say convert themselves to God, They don't mean the the initial awakening from death to life, which we now call regeneration. They're talking about the sanctification, the dying of the old man and the making alive of the new, Heidelberg 88 through 90. But that they, by the same power of the Holy Spirit, by which uh, they were converted to God without any contribution of themselves, are in like manner continually supported and preserved so that, although many weaknesses of the flesh cleave to them as long as they are in this life and are engaged in a continual struggle between flesh and spirit and also sometimes fall into grievous sins, nevertheless, uh, this same spirit prevails in this struggle, not permitting uh, that God's elect, by the corruption of the flesh, should so resist the spirit of sanctification that this would at any time be extinguished in them and that in consequence they would completely or finally lose the true faith which was once bestowed on them and the spirit of adoption as God's children which they had once received. All right. So that was a, a, a long article, uh, the point of which is to say it's God who initially enlightens, regenerates, and renews. It's by God's uh, foregoing, sovereign, unconditional grace in Christ that we come to new life and true faith, and it's out of that that we are uh, being sanctified by God's grace, as we say, without any contribution of themselves. You didn't contribute to your coming to new life and true faith? And therefore, you can't lose it. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I think I've done it. And I know that you sometimes think in yourself, you think, well, that, you know, there are sins and there are sins. And this one, I think this one crosses the line. I think there's no, no coming back from this one. When we think that way, we are putting ourselves under a covenant of works and we're not thinking in terms of a covenant of grace. We're in a covenant of grace. The, right, the evil one wants you to think that you've done something that can't be forgiven. You shouldn't think that. Jesus didn't die for little sins. He did, of course. He didn't die just for little sins or just for things that you think that he could pay for. He died for your ugliest sins. He died for murderers. He died for prostitutes. He died for, he died for the worst. I mean, In other words, he died for you. And how do I know that? Well, what did the Apostle Paul do before he was a believer? He murdered people. He arranged for the murder of people. What did David do to try to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba? I mean, he's an adulterer. What did he try to do? What what did he do to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba? He conspired and arranged for a murder. David's a murderer and an adulterer. That's a man after God's own heart. Right? Just go through the whole history of redemption and look at how wretched right, the elect often are. Jacob is a terrible guy. Abraham, if, if I treated my wife the way Abraham treated his wife, I tell you what, the door would be locked when I got home on Monday. I would not get in. How dare you pass me off as somebody other than, than your wife? Get out of here. And yet, Abraham did that. So, go through the whole history of redemption. These are not nice people whom God saved. These are really sinful people. Right? And so, uh, God awakens us from death to life, and still uh, the weaknesses of the flesh and our sins uh, cleave to us. And and we read question uh, 60 last night, where we looked at some of that language that that describes us as believers, right? Uh, Always struggling. Uh, and uh, and so we're very realistic about the degree to which we struggle, so that our sanctification is always imperfect in this life. Our sanctification is always imperfect in this life. And again, this is the same uh, doctrine that we confess in uh, 114, 100, Heidelberg 114 115. 114 says, Can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No, but even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of such obedience. Now it doesn't stop there. Sometimes, (laughs) Sometimes we stop reading here. Yet so, with an earnest purpose, they begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. Well, if we can't keep them perfectly, why does God enjoin them on us so strictly? First, that as long as we live, we may learn more and more to know, basically, the greatness of our sin and misery. And secondly, that we might more earnestly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Right? Or, or, well, then second, and uh, without ceasing, we may diligently ask God for the grace of His Holy Spirit, that we may be renewed more and more after the image of God. Right? So first, that we know the greatness of our sin and misery and, and seek forgiveness. And secondly, that we might be renewed. These are, by the way, according to Olivianus, right, uh, one of the Heidelberg theologians, these are the two parts of the Christian life. Uh, uh, justification and sanctification, and sanctification is the continual progressive renewal of the Christian in the image of Christ. All right, uh, our Article six, uh, so far. And then finally, right, uh, Article seven gets to the, the fifth. Article of the Remonstrance, and that's per, uh, perseverance. I wrote, I wrote with too much force on here. Article seven, perseverance. Uh, Article seven, perseverance. Um, we say, or we said, in uh, 1611, that nevertheless, uh, true believers find no excuse in this teaching to pursue carelessly the lusts of the flesh. This is one of the uh, critiques and objections that the Remonstrants were making. This doctrine, they said, that you reformed people, or that the reformed people were confessing out of the Heidelberg and the Belgic and and obviously under that, behind that, the Word of God, this will lead people and does lead people to lead ungodly and careless lives. This was the objection that the Romanists also made against the Reformed if, and against the Protestants. If you say they were justified by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, people will not have any incentive or sufficient incentive to be good. By the way... This is one of the driving forces behind the Federal Vision Doctrine. They aren't happy with your degree of sanctification. And so they put you back under a covenant of works in order to get you to be more obedient, to get you to be more sanctified by saying that you're in by baptism, but you have to stay in by faithfulness in order finally to be accepted with God. The problem is, In the first century, this did not work. This was the doctrine of the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees who, when they heard Jesus, immediately conspired to have him murdered. If a a conditional doctrine of salvation is so efficient and effective in sanctifying people, why is it that the people who teach that doctrine are so ungodly. And I can show you from a thousand years of church history that it completely failed because this became the doctrine of the medieval church. And it completely failed. One of the great criticisms of the medieval church by the time we got to the early 16th century was that it was an unholy mess from top to bottom. One uh, one document said that the church was corrupt in head and members. Christ the head, but the, but the Bishop of Rome and everybody flowing down from him. Uh, the corruption was just unbelievable. When Luther went to uh, Rome in 1510 on business for his Augustinian order, uh, he thought he was going to a holy city. He, he really thought he was going to see the city of God. and What he found was Las Vegas. What he found was the Tenderloin district in, in San Francisco what he found was a degree of of ungodliness and disobedience and rebellion and prostitution and corruption and the sale of indulgences. So It was so horrible that he said later, if there is a hell, then Rome is built right on top of it. He was absolutely horrified and greatly disappointed. The truth is, history tells us and our experience tells us this doctrine of conditional... Uh, Salvation doesn't produce sanctification. It does exactly the opposite. But they keep selling it to us on the basis that this is the way to get people to be good. All right, is to put people basically on probation. Uh, We say, no, this doctrine doesn't lead to carelessness, right? Because it is impossible that those who by true faith are engrafted into Christ should not produce. Fruits of thankfulness. And if you know the Belgic Confession, this is a direct quote from Article 24 of the Belgic Confession. Uh, maybe that's worth uh, reading here f- uh, for just a second. It's a wonderful article on the, on the doctrine of sanctification. Right? Belgic 24 says, We believe that this true faith being wrought in man by the hearing of the word of God, there's Heidelberg 65, and the operation of the Holy Spirit sanctifies him and makes him a new man, causing him to live a new life, freeing him from the bondage of sin. It doesn't say perfecting him, but freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life. We're having the same argument with the remonstrance that we had with the Romanists. The remonstrance didn't exist when Belgic 24 was published in 1561. This is written against Rome, but it's the same argument. That on the contrary, without it they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Therefore it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man. For we do not speak of a vain faith, but such a faith is called in Scripture a faith working through love, Galatians 5.6 which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in His Word. So it's the very same doctrine of Belgic 24 that we confessed against the remonstrance in Article 7. The more they persist in working, their own, working out their own salvation with fear and trembling, since they know that this is the only means by which it pleases God to keep them standing and to bring them to salvation. For this reason, he also employs in his word all manner of warnings and threatenings, not only to cause them to despair or doubt uh, their salvation, not, sorry, in order to cause them to despair or doubt their salvation, but rather to awaken in them a childlike fear by observing the weakness of their flesh in which they would surely perish unless the Lord keep them standing in his un. "...deserved grace, which is the sole cause and ground of their perseverance, so that although he warns them in his word to watch and pray, they nevertheless uh, do not have this of themselves, uh, that they desire God's help and lack nothing, uh, but only from the same Spirit, who by a special grace prepares them for this and thus also powerfully keeps them standing." Well. Um, I've gone, I've gone a little long, but, but I want you to hear those seven points and, and to hear how thoroughly, point by point, we refuted the five points of the remonstrance. And in hearing this refutation, this is really a, a, a restatement of the Reformation faith, isn't it? And if you, as you hear this and you bear in mind what you heard relative to the remonstrance, when you sit down to read the canons, Right Now you have a background for reading the Canons. And when you see this language uh, in the Canons, um, and you, uh, you'll, have, you'll have some background, you'll say, oh, yeah, I understand now that they said this because the Remonstrants said that. Or they said this because the Contras said that. And it'll make more sense. It'll be clearer, and you'll have a better understanding of it. All right, well, we'll stop now. I think I've been at it for uh, about an hour, so we should stop. We'll take a break and.